Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley. Ashley McCoy is a high school teacher in Iowa. She's also a survivor of sexual abuse and is passionate about educating others on human trafficking and the neurobiology of trauma. She's spoken at conferences, women's conventions, college and high school classes, and to first responders on these topics, and we're so happy to have her with us today. Well, today our guest is a friend of One Voice, a woman who, like many of you, uh, began writing to me over email just years ago, sharing her story, lending her support to all things One Voice, and then she began generously donating to all of our outreaches, and at one point, she responded to a social media post that I made about wanting topic ideas for our podcast. And she said a topic she really wanted to hear us cover on the One Voice podcast was the neurobiology of trauma because it has had such a profound impact on her own healing journey. And I really loved that idea when she first threw that out there because I know how powerful it is when there's just this one thing that suddenly educates you, enlightens you in this whole new way about yourself or about your abuse, maybe about your abuser, maybe a specific memory. And from that point forward, your perspective on your healing journey is completely shifted. And now this has happened to me a few times along my own healing journey. And I'll probably share a little bit about that after we get to talking with Ashley. But I want to go ahead and just introduce you to her. So, Ashley, we're so thrilled to have you as a guest um, on the One Voice podcast and just thankful so much for your support over the last few years. And I haven't met you yet, but Mary and I are thrilled at the possibility of you planning an event for us to come speak at in your own community in Iowa soon. So we'll work towards that. But Ashley, if you don't mind just sharing a little bit of your story and and your current passions. First of all, you need to get to Iowa, so we're going to try to make that happen. But um, growing up, I was always the athletic girl. Um, I was in every sport you can think of, and all my neighbors were boys. I think that's probably why I ended up being the tomboy type of child. Well, we were always running outside, doing all kinds of things, and um, we loved to play truth or dare. Usually things like, I dare you to light your leg hair on fire, or um, (laughs) I dare you to... um, go throw the tennis ball to the mean dog next door, things like that sure. that were fairly innocent. Um, and one day we were playing in one of these boys' uh, clubhouses, mm-hmm. and the nice innocent game of, of truth or dare kind of turned not so innocent for me. Um, mm-hmm. So that was hard because, first of all, they were, they were my closest friends in my, in my neighborhood as, as kids at least back when we were growing up, you just went outside and played until the streetlights came on and then you went back inside. And um, so they were my best friends. And um, Mm. I think one of the biggest things for me, um, once this uh, truth or dare game turned to sexual nature, um, when I said no, then all of a sudden my strong tomboy self went into nothing. Mm. Um, and I couldn't fight back. I couldn't do anything. And when you think back on it, you're mm. like, why didn't I do this? Why yeah. didn't I do that? Right. I could have just done this. <laughs> and when you're outside of that trauma experience, you can see all these escape plans, right? Exactly, and so yeah. I was beating myself up over that for years. Mm-hmm. 
And there was a second part of my story where all this happened over the course of a few hours. And then when I finally was allowed to leave, um, the next day they called me and apologized. They were crying on the phone. Um, We like that got out of hand, you know, all these excuses that people who abuse other people are really good at. Um, And I fell for it, you know. And so we went back over the next day and the abuse continued. And so then that was that was it after that. You know, they tried to threaten me and do all kinds of things to keep me quiet, which worked for about a decade. Um, But then after that, I just I went all into sports. And um, a month later, my neighbor actually invited me to a Bible camp. And I was like, no way. I'm not going to a Bible camp. I don't have time for that. And it was actually totally Lord ordained because I was a whole week where I had no sports camps. And for that to be in the summer where you have no camp or no practice for a whole week was crazy. Yeah, right. Um, So I ended up accepting the Lord that week. um, And I thought, okay, God had this happen for me to come to know him. So it's okay. I'm just going to put it in a box and not think about it anymore. Right. So something good came out of it. Okay. Check. It's over. Don't think about it. Mm. And that doesn't work, at least for me. Um, So then, you know, I worked on it on and off for a couple of years. And and the Lord really is the key ingredient in my healing. So I don't want to make it seem like this neurobiology stuff is the key ingredient that made me be like, oh, my gosh, I get it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was definitely a light bulb that the Lord used to help me gain my freedom and my story and like you always say, it's a lifelong journey, but this is definitely something that's helped me at least gain clarity on my actions during and after those assaults took place. Mm, I think that's really good to think about. I mean, so many times we, especially when we're um, using faith or Christ or Christianity or Jesus it, as a key to our healing, we have to remember that it's not all of it. And we can't just have Christian yep. pad answers that carry us all the way through this lifelong journey. It's not easy. Yep. And there are real pieces of trauma there. Um, and I think when we can educate ourselves on, you know, the biology of it or, you know, what I was thinking then and why, you know, why I was different or, you know, learning about dissociation. Mm-hmm. These things are all such yep. powerful tools in our healing because for me, I want to know everything about a situation. I want to, I want, yep. I want to be all in. If I'm going to work on this healing, I want to be all in. I want to know everything I want to know about myself. And I think yep. learning about it, um, is a piece of that healing. And, and for me personally, it was the same way. I remember just for a long time feeling so much guilt and shame over the fact that my body had responded to my stepdad's touch. And this was something I carried Mm -hmm. with me into my adulthood. After I had found my voice, I had even been speaking publicly on this. And there was a couple instances of memory where I thought, Oh yes, overall, I know the answer is it's not my fault. Yes, I know I was a kid. I know it was my stepdad. You know, all of these things. And I could tell other people that it's not their fault, but I held on to that one little thing and I didn't want to talk about it. But until I finally educated myself enough and learned through reading and and hearing other people's stories and and truly educating myself on biology, you know, similar to yours, that's when I found, you know, my body didn't betray me. 
My stepdad did. Yep. My body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. And the amount of freedom yep. that came to me through just that simple knowledge, it was enlightening and it was empowering. And it took me to a whole new level on that healing path that I don't think I would have ever gotten to if I just, you know, kept praying and, and, and giving it to Jesus. I needed to learn these things. Yeah, me too. And I think you and I have similar personalities where if we do something, we're going to we're gonna do it. I mean, you don't have to do something. You either do it or you don't do it. Exactly. And so when I, I was a kinesiology major in college, which is a fancy word for studying the body. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a PE teacher now, but my favorite okay. class is neurophysiology. I see. And now I'm like, oh, no wonder I liked it. I had a little like snip pit into what I was going to figure out later on into adulthood. So I didn't start studying neurobiology until a few years ago. And then once I started, I couldn't stop. So I was researching everyone and everything, watching every YouTube video mm-hmm. lecture from colleges I could get my hands on. Wow. And it was so it was like a like a weight taken off my shoulders that, yeah, it's not my fault. Yeah, I responded this way, but it actually was programmed into me to respond the way I did. And mm-hmm. I feel like that added so much clarity. And when I was speaking on human trafficking, I would start adding in some of these little snippets about the neurobiology of trauma or the neurobiology of assault, what's going on in your brain actually during an assault. And people mm-hmm. were responding to it. So I was like, oh, maybe I should speak about this a little bit more often. Yeah, so that's great. then we started doing that a little bit more. And that's kind of how this came about for me anyway. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that exactly, you know, what you've learned and because I think it can be so yeah. freeing for survivors, just as you're starting to give us a little bit of a taste of what it is from your story that it was impacted. I'm just thinking of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of survivors that I've met who've felt the same way, who've actually yep. spoken the same words of, you know, why did I do this? Why did I not do this? Yep. And because their reaction with in the trauma while they're being molested or raped was not the same as they would say their normal life. The way they responded mm-hmm. did not match up to who they believed they were. And so they yeah. carry so much shame over that and not understanding. So what you're saying about adding clarity to your story, um, that's so powerful. And if you could kind of bring some of that clarity in for other survivors who are still stuck with those questions of why did I respond this way? That would be so great. To start with, there's a whole bunch of fancy words about all kinds of chemicals that are being released. I'm going to skip all that because it doesn't really matter. Um, Mm -hmm. But basically you have this part of your brain that's called the prefrontal cortex. So that main job of that part of your brain is executive functions. It's what splits your attention all day. You could be um, listening to this podcast while driving, while talking to your three-year-old in the back seat. Um, your executive function skills in your prefrontal cortex is what controls all of that. It's, help, it's what helps us um, not freak out at our kids. It's what helps us not cuss out the driver next to us. It basically helps us live to our higher, highest moral standard that we believe we should be living to. Okay. Um, and it also helps us Um, decide what's important and what we want to give our attention to. Well, there's another part of your brain called the amygdala. Well, that is this itty-bitty little piece of your brain that's like crazy powerful. Um, And that's where something called your fear circuitry is located. Um, And when this fear circuitry in your amygdala takes over, it basically stops your prefrontal cortex from working as much as it did normally, and it takes over. Um, And your amygdala is 
it's basically always toggling on and off. It's always, it's kind of like a smoke detector. It's always on sensing what could be, um, what could be dangerous. What, where could somebody get hurt? Where could, Mm. um, like if you're sitting in a restaurant, sometimes people like to sit with their face towards the um, door so they can see everybody that's coming in. That's your amygdala working. Wow. I think Um, Mary has one of the biggest amygdalas I've ever seen. The most active ever. (laughs) I probably should see a doctor. Sheesh. Well, no, that's probably rooted in your fear circuitry. Mm, Your fear circuitry is probably at a little higher level. So when fear circuitry takes control, instead of thinking of, of how to split your attention, basically it's just survival reflexes that come into play. Um, and this can look totally different for each person and basically can alter what you, what you remember. This can get into repression um, and it can alter how you tell back a story. Um, if you're flooded with all kinds of, of chemicals in your brain, sometimes people will tell their story with little or no emotion. And people are like, how can you tell that terrible story and not be crying or not be sad? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because at the time their brains were, their brains were flooded with a certain chemical or, or it can be the complete opposite. They're sobbing and they have rage and they can barely get through the story because they're so mad or they're so sad or they're so hurt. Mm-hmm. All of this comes down to how much your fear circuitry was in control during um, your sexual abuse or your attack or um, your assault of some kind. Uh-huh. Um, so I kind, of, I kind of put it into three major things that people respond with. Um, disassociation, tonic immobility, and collapsed immobility are the ones that I have found in talking with different people about their stories that are the most common. Um, and I did do a, a, a talk one time with um, police officers and first responders, mm-hmm. and it was very interesting to hear their side of the story because they would say, oh, a victim was, would, they couldn't tell me from start to end what happened. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting. Well, now that I'm learning more and more, I'm like, yeah, because their fear circuitry was in control and their memory is, is in pieces. Right. It might be what, what they felt was the most significant part mm-hmm. was not at all exactly it's significant yeah. to everybody else outside of the story. For mm. me, I was, I was in a situation with three people against me, three mm-hmm. on one. Mm-hmm. And for me, the thing that made me the most mad is one of them hit me. Why did you need to do that? You were totally in control. Mm. Well, other people don't see that as the thing. Like, why does that make you the most mad? They did this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. That's just where my emotions went at the time. That's where the chemicals were released in my brain. That's where my fear circuitry took over. And that's what I remember the most. And Mm. so that that kind of thing is we're not thinking logically through a situation when when your prefrontal cortex is being impaired. So those are the three main things. I don't know if you want to add in anything. Well, I was just thinking about how interesting that is, even when it comes to the first person who hears your story. Mary and I have spoken at a few conferences lately of first responders and talking to even counselors and, and you know, non-counselors, those who would be the bearer of someone else's story for the first time. And They're just a friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. so often, you know, like a college RA or, or yeah, a friend or somebody like that, um, they're hearing a story and they, they always ask us a question like, well, what if we are not sure if we can believe the story you know and my Mm -hmm. answer is always you believe the story no matter what from the beginning you just believe it for them because that's so important to their healing now what they're telling you may not be 100 percent accurate but it's how they they have perceived it and what you're even sharing 
further gives great evidence of that in in that something awful happened how they perceived it it can be totally different from the actual reality because of the neurobiology of trauma that's exactly right and and often this is kind of going into my next part but often people say oh it's fight or flight well that's actually very incorrect um i feel bad for the world who doesn't know that that's not right um in in the world, we actually are built to freeze. And the only reason you fight is actually to get out of a situation. So the way it's worded is is fight or flight, like you should fight first. And then mm-hmm. if you if you don't, then you're less of a man. You're, you didn't do a good job. You're, you're not as strong. And even for me as a female, mm-hmm. I wanted to be the strong one. I still am like that. Sure. I wanted to be the one who got out of it. I punched my way through. I, you know, mm-hmm. But it, it's just not how we're programmed. We're programmed to freeze. Mm-hmm. Even in nature right now, we still aren't the big bad creatures we think we are. I mean, yeah, if we have a gun or we have a something. But there's so many other animals that can beat us. Like if a lion came into the room right now, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to get as small as I can and maybe try to run. And so this is one of the things that I'm like, oh, that's why I just, that's why I didn't try as hard as I think I should have to get out of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and to all of us, our abuser felt like a lion in the room. Totally. And if you think of it like that, and you think of it like a, a, you are prey in that situation. Exactly. And I don't want to you know, objectify someone to think, hey, you're just a piece of prey, you know, but we are prey in that situation to our predator Mm -hmm. who is abusing us. Mm -hmm. And so really, we are biologically programmed to survive, Mm -hmm. which usually means to freeze. And so that that was a big thing that I was like, oh, well, that that just makes sense, doesn't it? You know, Mm -hmm. so I can I can go into dissociation a little bit. I can go into mobility. Well, a little bit of all of them would be great. But dissociation, honestly, I think is something that so many survivors have experienced, but many don't even realize they did. And it also this was something that came through me educating myself on trauma, on sexual abuse, on healing over the course of my life Mm -hmm. since I was fourteen and told I've been you know, doing my best to become an expert on this topic and dissociation was something I learned even as a teenager and never realized it was something I was doing. But I can remember laying in my bed as a little girl, you know, and because I can I know how old I was because I know the fixtures in my room and the pictures on the wall. And I was so Mm -hmm. little and I had this little stained glass angel that hung from my um, window pane above my bed and that was only Mm -hmm. there until I was probably maybe eight or nine so knowing that I was being sexually abused because I remember feeling as if I was becoming that angel everything in me left my body and went into her and so that's totally dissociation yeah Right. But I never thought about it at the time. I mean, it was such a weird feeling as a kid when I would see that thing outside of my abuse. And I had this weird, weird connection to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then as an adult, I know why and what that was. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If you could explain that, because I think it is such a common thing for survivors. Yeah. And disassociation takes part again in that amygdala. So you really don't have control over what you fixate on or what you, or if you fixate on something it's called object fixation is what you're explaining. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any control over that because it's that amygdala that's in control. Like you were terrified in that situation when you 
for using that angel to get out of the situation that you were in in your mind. You knew you can't get out physically, so at least you got out mentally. And yes. That's how your body decided to cope. Um, and, yeah, so disassociation basically occurs when you have, when there's perceived no escape. So you perceive that there's no escape possible or you think you can't quite make it. Um, and that's when people start to dissociate. It's usually when you have, um, you've been pinned down. You are... Mm-hmm physically under the control of someone else. Usually it has begun when someone has already touched you or they've already grabbed your wrist or they've already um, put you on the bed or something like that. That's generally when disassociation happens. Not always. Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody's story is different. Um, And so that's a big part of of this presentation that I usually give is none of these things could have happened to you and your story is still valid and it's still normal. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of these things could happen to you, too. So, yeah, when people explain disassociation, it's almost like, like you said, it's like a blanked, a spaced out, almost felt like a dream. Um, It's when you've been disconnected from your body. And some people say, oh, it's like I was on autopilot. I I just was there. And some people even will, um, will play into the abuse to make the abuser finish so they know they can get out of the abuse. Um, And that's something that people feel a lot of shame about often is... Uh, well, I, I did this and this so I could make him or her be done. And, well, mm. I guess I wanted it then. Or I guess I, well, I guess I, part- I was partaking in it, so maybe it wasn't abuse. It's just part of your survival instincts to do that, actually. Mm. And dissociation, people, you know, they say they're on autopilot. And, and you might even, in your disassociative state, see an open door. And then you feel even worse because you're like, I could have just gone right out that door. And you're thinking of that while all this trauma is happening to you. I mean, regardless of what is going where and who's doing what, you could be thinking about the door or you could be thinking about the angel or you could be thinking about the chandelier. And people feel a lot of guilt about that because they might not even remember what was happening because they were so traumatized. They were focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I had that. I had my dad's favorite car is a 57 Chevy. Always has been, always will be. Well, there was a car in one of the places that looked just like that. And I remember just thinking like about that car. I don't even know anything about this dumb dumb car, but I kept looking at it, you know, it's the only thing I could look at. And once I figured out why was I, why did I just, why didn't I fight back? Why was I looking at the car for so long? Oh, well, this is why my brain was doing that to protect me. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. God is amazing. And I just sometimes I get overwhelmed with like, how does our brain know to do that? Mm -hmm. And we feel guilty about it when our prefrontal cortex is in control, like right now. Mm. But in the midst of the fear circuitry being in control, everything is wiped out from what we would normally process a situation. Exactly. And then it goes into an explanation as to why we're repressing the memories. Mary, I remember Mm -hmm. a a recent conference we were at, a woman came up to you and was talking to you about how she wanted so much to remember what happened. She knew something happened, but she didn't remember. Mm -hmm. And you were just sharing with her about, you know, sometimes God protects us as little kids. Oh, yeah. It's a defense mechanism. She wanted to be able to tap into those memories and those thoughts. And I just told her, you know, that can obviously be a scary thing because if you're not in a place to be mm-hmm. prepared and equipped to be able to handle that stuff. And I also didn't know if she was a believer or not. And I just said, 
you know, just a generic answer. When it's time, I feel like your brain will yeah. release those things when you are mm-hmm. meant to deal with them. But obviously, I know that God told me when I was in my early 20s, like, it's okay. And we're ready now to dive into this to heal, to start that journey and yep. to be present and in my skin and in my, you know, mm-hmm. real thoughts to be able to actually navigate through starting the healing journey. Yeah. So, yeah, they kind of come forward when we're able to really yeah. handle it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think God is totally in control of that. And and personally, I had repressed the whole second day. So mm-hmm. when I said my neighbors called me and apologized and stuff, I, had, I that was it in my brain for a long time until one day I was just sitting in my driveway talking on the phone to a friend, and I had looked next door and the light was on in this the room that everything had happened in, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. And then you have to sort through did, did this actually happen or am I making this up? Oh, and totally. it's like crazy. But again, like you said, I had been walking with the Lord for a few years. I had been trying to deal with a little bit of it on my own, but then you have to go and start all over, you know, and figuring out all of this and studying repression. It really adds clarity to that situation. So if you're dealing with repressed thoughts and memories and wondering if it really happened or not, likely it did Mm -hmm. and our bodies and our brains just shut it off because they knew we couldn't handle it at the time it's part of the survival reflex yeah that was what was so interesting for me um and sharing my story trying to explain to people you know because those who have been there get it but for those who can't even Mm. quite grasp the picture it's kind of bizarre to hear that you know even as a little girl i can look back now as an adult and i'm like boy, that was weird behavior, but hello, I was being abused. And I wasn't you yeah, know, thinking totally. about it at the time, like, this is weird. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's like, I have all these fuzzy, gray, weird memories that mm-hmm. I remember thinking when I was in college, did that really happen? Am I making this up? So exactly what you said is what was going yep. on in my head. And then it was when God kind of released the floodgates and said, okay, it's time. It was like, there was no doubt in my mind that yes, all of that had happened to me. Um, and again, to finally uh, visit those those memories and that abuse and stuff to finally kind of rip the bandaid off. Yeah, and I think sometimes when those things flood in, if we're not ready, we just push them back in the box. Yeah. And you can re-repress memories. You thought you remembered something, and then all of a sudden you can't remember what it is that you remembered. You weren't ready. Yeah, you shoved it back into the box. And so that's one thing I've learned on my healing journey is sometimes you just have to sit with it. Yep. Sometimes you just have to sit in those yucky moments. Sometimes you need a friend to come with you, but sometimes you just got to sit there and think on it and experience it and and either give it to the Lord, um, figure out what you were doing, why you were doing it, and, and sit with it for, for a little bit before you can shove it back in the box or move on or, or whatever it is because, I mean, it's coming to your forefront of your brain because you were triggered by something or or God needs you to remember it right now for a certain reason or whatever it is. But if we just continue to put it in the box, we're never going to deal with it. You know, we'll talk to okay. us a little bit more about the immobility. Okay. So tonic immobility and collapsed immobility are something I'd never heard of until I started researching this kind of thing. And when I started reading about it, I did not even believe it was a thing. Um, because when you freeze, basically when you have the freeze response, that's right when, you're, when your fear circuitry takes over. That amygdala starts firing on all cylinders, your prefrontal cortex stops working, and you freeze. Okay, But you're alert, you can take things in, um, but you're able to move. You might not move, but you're able to move. And so this is a big difference between tonic immobility and just 
freezing mm-hmm. is tonic immobility is you literally can't move or speak or it's very limited. Like a former friend of mine who, who told me her story and she's like, I just was trying to move one hand at a time oh. and I couldn't move my hands. And I just started to try to move my hands and I got my hand back and then I could move my arm and that was totally tonic immobility. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it was so common. And about my research, different experts say different things, but it's anywhere from 10 to 20% of victims who report to the police and the police have to have the right lens on when they're talking to these victims. But it's anywhere from 10, 20% of the people experience some sort of tonic or collapsed immobility. So that's actually a higher percentage than I would have thought it was. Mm. Um, yeah, but tonic immobility is caused by extreme fear. Um, you're, you're totally dominated. Um, it usually happens after you've tried to struggle out or you really are like, this person could kill me. If they're willing to use me like this, they could kill me. Um, even if it's a friend, which is most common, a friend or a family member, right? Someone we know right. or someone we met. Yep. Um, it's not It's not always the stranger in the alley like people like to think it is in our safe little minds. But um, it's usually after a, a failed struggle or attempt or you realize, like, seriously, they're going to do this to me. They could kill me. Um, and then you just freeze up. Your body, all your muscles just become immobile. You can't speak. This happens to sharks, actually. Um, there's only one predator that I know of that can take out a shark. Um, and that's the killer whale. And if you get a shark flipped over on its on so belly up, it actually freezes immobily. So it's tonic immobile. You can touch his eyes. You can touch its gills. You can mess with his fins and he's not moving. Yeah. He is rigid. And it's crazy. If you ever look up a YouTube video of it, it's nuts. But sharks have this same thing, tonic immobility, because that's the only way they've known how to not be prey. Mm. And so our brains do the same thing. Mm. Even if you want to move, you can't move. And that's tonic immobility. Mm. And it's not a sign of you not being strong enough to fight back. It's not a sign of you being weak. It's a sign of your brain saying, hey, we're in trouble here. We're Mm going to survive. It's a sign of strength and of health. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so it kind of counteracts the victim shaming that people can can bring about when they say, well, why didn't you run? Why didn't you yell? Why didn't you move? Well, I literally couldn't because my body is so amazing that it wouldn't allow me to. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And because usually... When when somebody thinks, I mean, sexual abuse is rarely about sex. Sometimes, yes, but rarely, no. Mm-hmm. Usually about power and control, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if we are threatening that power and control by fighting back, it's going to get worse. And our brain knows that. It's been programmed to know that. Yes. And it's just amazing that that even happens. But that's one of the things when I speak on this, I'm like, this, even if you haven't had sexual trauma in your past, you might or more likely will hear a story of someone and... And then you don't ask questions like, well, why didn't you run at that open door? Why didn't you scream? There was 75 people next door. They all would have came and helped you. Yeah. Why didn't you just call out? Well, yeah. I couldn't. Exactly. You know? And Instead it makes sense. Instead say, or, I am so sorry that happened to you. <laughs> you didn't deserve yep. that. Yeah. Let's go with that yeah. instead. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So this can, this can gain a lot of clarity to people who are first yeah, responders, who are definitely. lawyers, who are friends and and victims and survivors themselves as well yes. wow well then there's the opposite of of tonic immobility is collapsed immobility and this is like if someone ever said to you like i felt like a rag doll he just moved me around he could yeah. put my arm wherever it wanted to go and that's a sign of collapsed immobility and oftentimes first responders uh, police officers detectives 
usually it's a macho guy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not always, but oftentimes. Well, why would you just let him move you around like that? Well, it was oh. collapsible ability. It's the thing. That's why this is so important for first responders and police officers to hear and detectives and um, people who work in the ambulance and lawyers because this gains a lot of clarity, too. This is not consensual sex because usually it's a he said, she said in if you're going to court because there's not a lot of evidence sometimes. And if someone's like, he just was moving me around, that does not happen in consensual sex. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so collapsed immobility, it actually is affecting your heart rate. Your heart rate drops. You can actually get like sleepy or you might faint. You might come in and out of consciousness. Um, you wake up and you see somebody is there and you're all of a sudden in a different spot than you were before. Um, that's all signs of collapsed immobility. Um, and yeah, it, it's really based on you're so scared. You're getting limited oxygen to your brain because it's all pumping through your body. And people can actually fall asleep after an assault. And it's not necessarily they're falling asleep. Like, oh, it was no big deal. I was just in college and my RA did this and this to me. And then I fell asleep like no big deal. Actually, they were so scared. They fainted and were so sleepy. It just appeared that they went to sleep and woke up. That can gain some clarity, too, for people who are like, how did I just go to sleep after that? Or people who were abused in childhood. Oftentimes, it's reading bedtime stories and that doesn't go as well as, you know, a good dad and a good daughter or a good mom and a good daughter, you know, whatever it is. And then they just go to sleep. It could truly be you're so scared you just fell asleep. Mm -hmm. And you actually fainted because of a loss of oxygenated blood to your brain. Well, I think it's so true that obviously all of our stories are different and the way that we've responded to our abuse is always going to be different, just like our healing journeys are different. However, these things are so very common and, but we don't talk about that. You know, we don't don't really think about these, these tools really for survival, but when we don't really know about them, then it gets kind of twisted in our brains and we... And we feel like things are our fault or we should have done something different. Yep. But hearing all about this, I think will help many people, I hope, to really be able to think about their abuse in a different light, to be able to um, look back yeah. on that, you know, the little girl or the little boy that was being abused and to give them a little bit of grace and saying, look at how strong yep. you were. Look at how amazing totally. you were to be able to survive that and to, you know, unconsciously use these tools in your in your brain your Mm -hmm. little tiny brain to be able to get through that totally and even for i mean adult rape victims or college Mm. you know things like that it's like i should have i was 20 years old i should have been able to fight back you know Mm -hmm. or he was drunk and i only had a few drinks i should have been able to blah 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 Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. not always yes sometimes sometimes people fight back get out of it and praise the lord for that right Mm -hmm. um but oftentimes these these things that I have found are what lead to the most victim blaming themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and other people blaming them. Why'd you just lay there? Yeah. Why didn't you XXX? Well, this is why. And it is actually quite logical. And I found a lot of, a lot of people who are, who find some solace in knowing that it wasn't in their control how they responded. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like you said, sometimes your body responds to things and sometimes you will move with something or do something really good to get it done. Mm-hmm. And it's your body surviving. 
that can bring so much freedom for people. And unfortunately, it's going to be it up to a lot of the survivors to be able to educate the general public yeah. on how to stop the victim blaming and victim shaming. Um, totally. But, you know, as you continue to share this with others um, and hopefully like anything else that one voice has to do with, it's about a ripple movement. You know, yeah. each of us sharing little pieces of our story, little pieces of truth, pieces of our healing, yeah. impacting the next survivor or the next ally or the next first responder. You know, over time, people are going to get this. And I think this yeah. is a really powerful topic. And I'm so glad that you decided to reach out and to tell us um, about your idea for this and, and to be willing to be the one to say it. So. Yeah, I was hoping you were going to do it, but it's cool. <laughs> well, it's obviously been um, really impacting for you, and it has been for me, too, but I think people get tired of hearing me talk, so <laughs> so um, I love this. And so, I mean, obviously, this has really impacted your healing journey, so where are you today, Ashley? Like, I know you're, you're a high school teacher, you're a mom of yep. a toddler, but like, how is this impacting you today? Do you feel like so much freedom from this to where your healing journey has been looking pretty good lately? Or like, you know, do you feel like there's still those hills and valleys that you're up against? Um, do you feel really powerful with your voice now? Like, just talk to us a little bit about how your journey from getting to from that point of the, the neurobiology and understanding that to today has really um, changed or yeah. how it's just impacted you. I love teaching and I teach high school. Um, I can't do the boogers and hugs at the first grade. It's, I don't handle that well. Mm. So I teach high schoolers. I'd rather have Yummy. the sex talk than have the, I need to help tie my shoes talk. Um, yeah. So as, as a high school teacher and I teach PE, which is a pretty relaxed environment. Um, yeah. You don't come in and sit down and start learning, right? We, we are moving, we're, you yeah. know, working out, etc. But a lot of high schoolers will actually disclose things to me that I wouldn't have uh, expected before I became a high school PE teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this has actually really impacted how I talk to my high schoolers because there's a different line when I go and speak at a women's conference or I go or whatever that I can talk about than I feel comfortable talking about with my students. But this has really helped me to help them gain clarity to their responses in different childhood trauma or even recent trauma that they have disclosed to me as as a safe adult. Um, And so actually when I heard your podcast on Mrs. Bell, I said to myself, I want to be a Mrs. Bell to someone else. And so that's really impacted my like brain work, like thinking like, okay, I have time for this. You know, if it's someone who's like, can I meet with you after school? It's like, oh, I really have to go and get Harper and I really want to go do this. It's like, no, you make time Mm -hmm. because you can really be somebody for someone else, you know? And so this, topic has really helped me with being able to talk with other people about their stories in a, in a way that's like, these are just facts. These are plain, simple facts. And I'm not bringing in my emotion and my, um, my beliefs, because it's really hard unless someone asked me about the Lord or asked me about my story at, at the high school, I can't share it. Yeah. Um, and so if someone asked me, I'm more than willing and happy to do it. <laughs> um, but this is the way that I can talk to them about, like, I heard you say that you were really scared and then you just, you just sat there in the car and you just, you quote unquote, let it happen. Mm. This is why actually, you know, yeah. and they're like, you teach PE. I'm like, Hey, <laughs> I can know things. Okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
So <laughs> right. I, I think I have a pretty good relationship with my kids, so they can joke. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. I think that's one of the main ways that this has really helped me is my personal story and getting to a point where I'm comfortable in it. And it's not something that I have to be ashamed about. It's not something that I have to, you know, hold in all the time. I mean, I'm not going to broadcast it with all my kids or all my, you know, whatever, but there's no shame in it, really. That's so good. And that's it's just not, my hope I for so many of us yeah. is that we would all get to that point where in just a small conversation, we're able to simply identify ourselves yeah. as a survivor and be able to just share just enough, yep. just enough yep. to bring someone totally. else a feeling of not being alone and hope for their own future. You know, there's ups and downs always. I think. And, you know, I feel like I'm really strong sometimes. And then the Me Too movement happens and I'm like, ah, crap, I'm seeing this all over the place. Now I got to deal with my own stuff again. And then you feel strong again. And then, you know, so there's always ups and downs, I think. But I think that just shows that you're willing to go through the trenches. If it keeps coming up and you can keep dealing with it, I think that's the Lord saying, good work. Keep going. Keep going. I'm going to hold your hand through this, but keep going. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Ashley. This was really fun. Good to get to know you. Oh, and I'm so glad. Yeah, Mary and I are hopeful that we'll be able to meet you soon in your own city and um, we I can know. do an event together and, and, and just continue on this this healing road, but also an advocacy road, too. And um, it's, yeah. it's been fun to get to know you just through email and such. So if you ever um, need a neurobiology talk at one of your seminars, you let me know. Yes. Oh, my gosh. We'll do a whole conference. <laughs> okay. That'd be great. Good. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Well, well, it was great talking to you. Thanks you for taking time to uh, to have this. Of course. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah. Have a great day. You, too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. Our guest next time is Stacy Huffman, a therapist in Delaware State specializing in the treatment of sexual offenders. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.